0: The sermon title this morning, Loving the Bible for What It Is, is one half of the title of a recent blog post by Rachel Held Evans. Loving the Bible for what it is, not for what I want it to be. That's a tall order in our, in our time, to receive the Bible for what it is without making it subject to our whims or preferences A while ago, a hotel in England's Lake District replaced all the Gideon Bibles that were on the bedside tables with the racy bestseller, Fifty Shades of Grey. The the hotel owner explained, tonight millions will be curling up with a good book and you can bet your life it won't be the Bible. I haven't read Fifty Shades of Grey yet, but I hear it's a ripping good yarn. He continued, that made me wonder whether... We should shouldn't replace uh, the Gideon Bibles, who no one seems to read, with a book they'd actually like to read. I don't think Stanley Harrowas of Duke Divinity School wants to line up with that uh, England hotel owner, but he did once write, "With the Reformation, we gave the Bible to the people. We put it in their hands and we put it in their language." The fruit of the Reformation was to give the Bible to the people. In our culture, he said, we need a second Reformation. We need to get all those Bibles back. We need to take them out of the pews. We need to take them out of the hotel rooms. We need to get them off coffee tables and bedside stands. We need to get the Bibles back. Why would he say that? Because, he says, the Bible means nothing unless it is read in the context of the worshiping, serving believing community, placed in any other context. The Bible is a dangerous book, especially when placed in our enlightenment culture. It's inevitably misunderstood and misread. Trying to read the Bible outside the believing, worshiping, serving community is a little like trying to read TV Guide in a culture that has no TV. The Scriptures demand the context and the Holy Spirit's gathered wisdom represented by all of us. I believe that the Bible primarily serves two functions in our life together. Number one, it equips us for faithful daily living. Secondly, it precipitates crisis. Being equipped by Scripture is one of the very necessary things for following Jesus in this world. We need God's words of peace and justice and expectation and hope to enter lovingly into our world each day, this world that frankly lives by a very different set of words, strife, conflict, division, violence, oppression, selfishness. The Bible, from God's initiative at creation to Jesus dying for us on the cross to God raising Jesus from the dead, provides a completely different way of seeing ourselves and our world. And we need it every time we enter in this world, regardless of what we are doing, serving, deciding, trusting, studying, working, Serving, contemplating, whatever it is, Scripture gives us a different way of seeing that. I once knew an African-American seminary student who was a biblical literalist. He said, the Bible is God's word, and every word in the Bible is God's word. So I asked him, well, what do you make of the phrase in the Bible, slaves obey your masters? Complete hogwash, he shot back. It's it's a wrong text. It's a dangerous text. What was it that allowed him to have such an exalted literal view of Scripture and yet know that a particular text needed to be resisted? It's because the Bible doesn't function really as a bunch of separate stories and words. The Bible functions as an overall framework. The whole orients the particular. This orientation allowed him to judge not only about what was destructive in the world, but also those pieces of the Bible itself that if left to their own devices would subvert the whole. He had a sense of the whole that was deeper and richer than any of the parts. But if we do not in our daily lives equip ourselves with the whole of Scripture and put it to work, how in the world can we make those Crucial choices. One scholar put it this way The Bible is like a great chorus of voices. Each text is a different voice. But if you pull one singer out of the chorus, you can't tell from that one voice whether that's the melody or harmony or, or dissonance. But if you put it all together and listen to the whole, then you know the key. You know the melody, and you can judge each individual voice as closer to or farther away than that melody. There's a sense of the whole which equips us when reading Scripture. But the other thing I believe the Bible does or should do in our lives and in the life of the church is precipitate crisis. Crisis is not a word we like. It's not a word that we think has anything to do with God. We look to God to get us out of crises. But the Bible has a way of coming into our status quo lives and turning everything upside down. Sometimes I believe it seems like we almost want a soft landing spot for the Word of God, it's almost like we want to create a fluffy little pillow so then we can put the Scripture on it and kind of wink to each other like, you know, the claims in here, they're not really as radical as they may seem. We'll be fine. But Scripture in the life of the church has a way of surprising us, of calling us to see God in everything we do. The Word of God has this way of knocking out all our fake props From underneath our feet. For every time the Bible undergirds something traditional, and it does, the Bible also seeks to subvert everything so that we look at it through God's eyes alone. A minister, a friend of mine, uh, had a family who wanted to have their child baptized in church one day, as you probably know, Presbyterian churches do this in a fairly rigorous way. Of course, there is paperwork to fill out and and you've got to take it to the session and plan the date and then rehearse how it's all going to go around the font. She preached that Sunday on a text from Acts chapter 10 where Peter is preaching to a group of Jews and Gentiles and to everyone's astonishment, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles, and they say, can we be baptized, throwing the early church into crisis until finally someone of the group said, is there anyone who would withhold the waters of baptism? And they were baptized. So on this particular Sunday after the sermon, she gave the cue to the family just as they had planned, would those wishing to be baptized please come forward? And up came the family along with two visitors from the back row, a mother and her teenage daughter, out of order, <laughs> ready to be baptized. Fortunately, thrown into a crisis by her own sermon and converted by it, She did not withhold the waters of baptism, paperwork or not. You see, Scripture has this way of shaking us up and surprising us in small, medium, and large ways, precipitating a crisis in our life that moves us deeper into faith. But if we have not equipped ourselves with the living Word of God, if we have not tried to immerse ourselves in that, How can we ever know the effect of a crisis? And if there's not the crisis, frankly, all the competence we have about scripture will turn out to be stagnant and stale. There's a rhythm to the equipping of scripture and the crisis, which is the rhythm of scripture itself. But let's face it, there are barriers to gaining this competence and this equipping. We live in an era of specialization. Most clergy have been to seminary. We've had Greek and Hebrew. It's easy to say, we're the experts. When it comes to the Bible, don't worry, we'll take care of it. Sometimes the Bible is used in such a way as to confuse. The language is sometimes arcane. Some of the juiciest stories are conveniently ignored. And let's face it, printing Scripture on these thin, little, fragile pages hardly hardly encourages a robust handling. And then there's simply the matter of scholarship. Volumes have been written about every verse in the Bible. Who are we to question a whole library of experts who seem to know what they're talking about? I was told a lie in seminary. I was actually told a lot of lies in seminary, but we'll get to that later. I was told a lie that we should approach Scripture like a surgeon in an operating theater with sterile instruments of scholarship. I should cut into a text without contaminating it at all and reach inside and grab the meaning and carry it carefully to the pulpit and give it to you. The lie is that the purpose of interpretation is sterile. It's not So you pick up your Bible from the shelf where you just left it an hour ago during your quiet time, or you kind of get it out from under the three novels and dust it off, it's been a while, either way, you read a text, you read any text, now what do you do? You should rattle every window and try every door in the text. You should use all your hunches and speculations and intuition when you read Scripture. As legendary biblical interpreter Paul Ricoeur said, look, all Scripture interpretation begins with a guess. You pick up your Bible and you look at a text. It's not a matter of going step one, step two, step three, voila, here's the meaning We believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and at work today bringing passages to truth in our midst within you and within the gathered community. So use your imagination, use your best guess. So how about all those scholars and commentaries? They are used importantly as a test to validate, to challenge our intuition. So briefly, if you would, imagine that any biblical text has four spheres of action. Behind the text, underneath the text, in front of the text, and above the text. And rather than marching through a process of reading scripture that makes you feel intimidated because you're pretty sure you're not doing it right, explore delightfully all four dimensions of the text, behind the text, and underneath the text, and in front of the text, and above it. Behind the text goes into the historical and sociological underpinnings of Scripture. Where did this come from, and what did it mean then? For example, we believe that the community to which Mark wrote was a lower class, a poor community. We believe Luke wrote to a fairly middle-class community, and that Matthew wrote to First Suburban Church, Uh, pretty affluent and on the move. When Jesus tells his disciples to go out two by two in the gospel of Mark, he says to his disciples, take no money. And in Mark, the word for money is copper. In Luke, he says, go out two by two and take no money. But in Luke, the word is silver. In Matthew, go out two by two, the word is copper and silver and gold they're leaving behind Gold American Express cards in the Gospel of Matthew. To explore those social and historical circumstances is to get behind the text. Underneath the text, that's that's the structure of the text, the way that the text is built. I think this is the hardest thing to get at in casual reading. In the Gospel of John, there is a pattern which I call question-answer-dumb-response. The way it works is this. Someone will ask Jesus a question. It'll be a good question, but it's a question at the level of ordinary life. Jesus will answer, but he will answer at the level of eternal truth, and that will provoke some inane response from the person who asked the question. Take the woman at the well in the Gospel of John. She asked a good question. Why is it that you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan for a drink? Jesus answered, If you knew who was asking, you would have been free to ask, and he would have given you living water. Right over her head. You can tell that by her response. Her response, where are you going to get this living water, Jesus? You don't have a bucket. (laughs) Now, notice that we're not behind the text here. Behind the text has to do, I don't know, with the intelligence of Samaritan women. That's not the point. It's a literary device that is to provoke in us, the reader, to go, oh, he's not talking about that kind of water. He's talking about, oh. And with that, the miracle of the Gospel of John has begun to work. Another thing under the text, have you ever paid any attention to the narrator's voice in a biblical text? What do you know and when do you know it? Take 1 Samuel 3. Little Samuel in the temple with Eli at night asleep. A voice comes to little Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. He runs to Eli and says, did you call me? Eli says, no. Now what does the reader know? The reader knows. We know it's the voice of God. Does Samuel know that? No. Does Eli know that? No. It happens again. Samuel runs back to Eli. We know twice now. This is God's voice. Does Samuel know it? No. Does Eli know it? No. We know something the characters don't know. Third time it happens, Samuel runs to Eli and the narrator says to us, and Eli discerned it was the voice of God. Now who knows it? Well, you know it. The narrator knows it. Eli knows it. Does Samuel know it? Samuel doesn't know it. He's waiting for Eli to tell him. And Eli knows that if he says it's the word of God, it means the destruction of the house of Eli. If it had been me, I would have said... If I'd been Eli, I would have said to Sammy, yeah, that was me, just go back to sleep, boy. But Eli didn't do that. Here we have an example of a leader in power giving up that power by submitting it to the Word of God. It's that underneath the text, the work of the narrator that causes that effect to happen. Poking and prodding in front of the text, I think, is the artistry of the bible it also what most often engages us about a passage understanding what's in front of the text takes a competence a living with the equipping of scripture it's also the birth of many of the crises that scripture provokes in front of the text we experience the consequences of our lives intertwined with the lives of those in the bible Take the verse in the Gospel of Luke in which it says, the women and the others who followed Jesus watched Jesus' crucifixion from a distance. Jesus is being crucified. Who cares how far away they were? I mean, who cares if it was five feet, 50 yards, five miles? What does it matter that they were at a distance? The Greek word is makron. It means at a distance. So, Does anywhere else in Luke or Acts use that word macron? Luke chapter 15, and the prodigal son came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father. And while he was still macron, his father saw him and ran and embraced him. Luke chapter 18, two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee said, oh God, I thank thee I'm not like these others, I'm not an extortioner, I'm not a blasphemer, I'm not like that jerk right over there, and the publican over there stood Macron and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not a measure of distance. The effect that it creates in you and me is a theological distance. It's a sense of humility and repentance and all one has when one is in the presence of the grace and mercy of God. Peter, by the way, in Acts, ends his Pentecost sermon, this good news is for you and for your children and for your children's children and all who are Macron. It's a way we get caught up in front of the text into the drama of the Bible. Well, that's behind the text and under the text and in front of the text. I can't tell you about the other one, above the text. Um, Because finally, the aim of all use of the Bible in our life and in the life of our worshiping community is to refer us beyond ourselves. The aim of all biblical texts in terms of precipitating a crisis in our life, is to put us in touch with the author of all crisis, the living God, and to go deeper and deeper and deeper into love and service of our creator. No methodology will do that. No program will do that. No spreadsheet will do that. It's only as together and in our personal devotions, we explore faithfully behind and under and in front, and we engage and we guess and we test and we probe and we challenge and we are challenged that we are given a gift that is never ours to seize and never ours to program, but only ours to receive. The encounter with the biblical text, which in that moment becomes an encounter with the redemptive love of the living God. And when that happens, our lives will never be the same again. Our church will never be the same again. The world, will be changed.